John Norton, Chapter Five of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. Mrs. Norton flung her black shawl over her shoulders, rattled her keys, and scolded the servants at the end of the long passage. Kitty, as she watered the flowers in the greenhouse, often wondered why John had chosen to become a priest and grieve his mother. One morning, as she stood watching the spring tide, she saw him walking up the drive. The sky was bright with summer hours, and the beds were catching flower beneath the evergreen oaks. She ran to Mrs. Norton, who was attending to the canaries in the bow window. "'Look, look, Mrs. Norton! John is coming up the drive! It is he! Look!' "'John!' said Mrs. Norton, seeking for her glasses nervously. "'Yes, so it is. Let's run and meet him. But no, let's take him rather coolly. I believe half his eccentricity is only put on because he wishes to astonish us. We won't ask him any questions. We'll just wait and let him tell his own story.' "'How do you do, mother?' said the young man, kissing Mrs. Norton with less reluctance than usual. You must forgive me for not having answered your letters. It really was not my fault. And how do you do, Kitty? Have you been keeping my mother company ever since? It is very good of you. I'm afraid you must think me a very undutiful son. But what is the news? One of the rooks is gone. Is that all? What about the ball at Staining? I hear it was a great success. Oh, it was delightful. You must tell me about it after dinner. Now I must go round to the stables and tell Walls to fetch my things from the station. Are you going to be here for some time? said Mrs. Norton with an indifferent air. Yes, I think so. That is to say, for a couple of months. Six weeks. I have some arrangements to make, but I will speak to you about all that after dinner. With these words John left the room, and he left his mother agitated and frightened. "'What can he mean by having arrangements to make?' she asked. Kitty could, of course, suggest no explanation, and the women waited the pleasure of the young man to speak his mind. He seemed, however, in no hurry to do so, and the manner in which he avoided the subject aggravated his mother's uneasiness. At last she said, unable to bear the suspense any longer, have you had a quarrel with the Jesuits? Not exactly a quarrel, but the order is so entirely opposed to the monastic spirit. What I mean is, well, their worldliness is repugnant to me. Fashionable friends, confidences, meddling in family affairs, dining out, letters from ladies who need consolation. I don't mean anything wrong. Pray don't misunderstand me. I merely mean to say that I hate their meddling in family affairs. Their confessional is a kind of marriage bureau. They have always got some plan on for marrying this person to that, and I must say I hate all that sort of thing. If I were a priest I would disdain to. But perhaps I am wrong to speak like that. Yes, it is very wrong of me, and before Kitty, you must not think I am speaking against the principles of religion. I am only speaking of matters of— And have you given up your rooms in Stanton College? Not yet. That is to say, nothing is settled definitely. But I do not think I shall go back there. 
at least not to live. And do you still think of becoming a priest? On that point I am not certain. I am not yet quite sure that I have a vocation for the priesthood. I would wish the world to be my monastery. Be that as it may, I intend altering the house a little here and there. You know how repugnant this mock Italian architecture is to my feelings. For the present I am determined only on a few alterations. I have them all in my head. The billiard-room, that edition of yours, can be turned into a chapel, and the casements of the dreadful bow-window might be removed, and instead of the present flat roof a sloping tiled roof might be carried up against the wall of the house. The cloisters would come at the back of the chapel. His mother bit her thin lips, and her face tightened in an expression of settled grief. Kitty was sorry for Mrs. Norton, but Kitty was too young to understand, and her sorrow evaporated in laughter. She listened to John's explanations of the architectural changes as to a fairy tale. Her innocent gaiety attracted her to him, and as they walked about the grounds after breakfast he spoke to her about pictures and statues, of a trip he intended to take to Italy and Spain, and he did not seem to care to be reminded that this jarred with his project for immediate realization of Thornby Priory. Leaning their backs against the iron railing which divided the greensward from the park, John and Kitty looked at the house. From this view it really is not so bad, though the urns and loggia are so intolerably out of keeping with the landscape. But when I have made certain alterations, it will harmonize with the downs and the flat flowing country, so English, with its barns and cottages and rich agriculture, and there will be then a charming recollection of old England, the England of the monastic ages, before the... but I forgot I must not speak to you on that subject. Do you think the house will look prettier than it does now? Mrs. Norton says that it will be impossible to alter Italian architecture into Gothic. Mother does not know what she is talking about. I have it all down in my pocket-book. I have various plans. I admit it is not easy, but last night I fancy I hit on an idea. I shall, of course, consult an architect, although really I don't see there is any necessity for so doing, but just to be on the safe side. For in architecture there are many practical difficulties, and to be on the safe side I will consult an experienced man regarding the practical working out of my design. I made this drawing last night. John produced a large pocket-book. But, oh, how pretty! Will it really be like that? Yes, exclaimed John, delighted. It will be exactly like that. The billiard-room can be converted into a chapel by building a new high-pitched roof. Oh, John, why should you do away with the billiard-room? Why shouldn't the monks play billiards? You played on the day of the meet. I am not a monk yet. The conversation paused a moment, and then John continued. That dreadful addition of my mother's cannot remain in its present form. It is hideous, but it can be converted very easily into a chapel. It will not be difficult. A high-pitched timber roof, throwing out an apse at the end, 
and putting in mullioned and traceried windows filled with stained glass. And the cloister you were speaking about, where will that be? The cloister will come at the back of the chapel, and an arched and vaulted ambulatory will be laid round the house. Later on I shall add a refectory and put a lavatory at one end of the ambulatory. But don't you think, John, you may become tired of being a monk, and then the house will have to be built back again? No, the house will be, from every point of view, a better house when my alterations are carried into effect. And as for my becoming a monk, that is in the main an idea of my mother's. Monastic life, I admit, presents great attractions for me, but that does not mean that I shall become a monk. My mother does not understand an impersonal admiration for anything. She cannot understand that it is impossible to become a monk unless you have a vocation. It is all a question of vocation. Later in the day Mrs. Norton stopped John as he was hurrying to his room. She was much excited by the news just received of the engagement of one of the Austin girls. She approved of the match and spoke enthusiastically of the girl's beauty. I could never see it. It never appealed to me in the least. But no woman does. You never think a woman good-looking. Yes, I do. But you never can understand an impersonal admiration of anything. You say I do not appreciate beauty in women because I do not marry. You say I am determined on becoming a monk because I admire monastic life. But are you going to become a monk? I am not sure that I should not prefer the world to be my monastery. Now you are talking nonsense. Now you are beginning to be rude, mother. We were discussing the question of beauty in women. Well, what fault, I should like to know, do you find with Lucy? John laughed, and after a moment's hesitation he said, her face is a pretty oval, but it conveys nothing to my mind. Her eyes are large and soft, but there is no, no, John gesticulated with his fingers, no what? No beyond. No what? No suggestiveness in her face, no strangeness. She seems to me too much like a woman. I think a woman ought to be like a woman. You would not like a man to be like a woman, would you? That's different. Women are often beautiful, but their beauty is not of the highest type. You admit that Kitty is a pretty girl. Well, she's not nearly so womanly in face or figure as Lucy. Her figure is slight even to boyishness. She's like a little antique statue done in a period of decadence. She has the faraway look in the eyes which we find in antique sculpture, and which is so attractive to me but you don't understand. I understand very well. I understand you far better than you think, Mrs. Norton answered angrily. She was angered by what she deemed her son's affectations, and by the arrival of the architect, before whom John was to lay his scheme for the reconstruction of the house. Mr. Egerton seemed to think John's architecture somewhat wild, but he promised to see what could be done to overcome the difficulties he foresaw, and in a week he forwarded to John several drawings for his consideration. Judged by comparison with John's dreams, the practical architecture of the experienced man seemed altogether lacking in expression and in poetry of proportion. 
and comparing them with his own cherished product, John hung over the billiard-table where the drawings were laid out. He could think of nothing but his monastery. His Latin authors were forgotten. He drew facades and turrets on the cloth during dinner, and he went up to his room, not to bed, but to reconsider the difficulties that rendered the construction of a central tower an impossibility. Once again he takes up the architect's notes. The interior would be so constructed as to make it impossible to carry up the central tower. The outer walls would not be strong enough to take the large gables and roof. Although the chapel could be done easily, the ambulatory would be of no use, as it would lead probably from the kitchen offices. Would have to reduce work on front façade to putting in new arched entrance. Buttresses would take the place of pilasters. The bow window could remain. The roof to be heightened somewhat. The front projection would throw the front rooms into almost total darkness. But why not a light timber lantern tower? thought John. Yes, that would get over the difficulty. Now, if we could only manage to keep my front, if my design for the front cannot be preserved, I might as well abandon the whole thing. And then? His face contracted in an expression of anger. He rose from the table and looked round the room. The room seemed to him a symbol. The voluptuous bed, the corpulent armchair, the toilet table shapeless with muslin, of the hideous laws of the world, and the flesh ever at variance and at war, and ever defeating the indomitable aspirations of the soul. John ordered his room to be changed, and in the face of much opposition from his mother, who declared that he would never be able to sleep there, and would lose his health, he selected a narrow room at the end of the passage. He would have no carpet. He placed a small iron bed against the wall two plain chairs, a screen to keep off the draught from the door, a small basin-stand, such as you might find in a ship's cabin, and a prie-dieu were all the furniture he permitted himself. Oh, what a relief, he murmured. Now there is line, there is a definite shape. That formless upholstery frets my eye as false notes grate on my ear, and, becoming suddenly conscious of the presence of God, he fell on his knees and prayed. He prayed that he might be guided aright in his undertaking, and that, if it were conductive to the greater honor and glory of God, he might be permitted to found a monastery, and that he might be given strength to surmount all difficulties. End of John Norton, Chapter 5 Recording by James Carson